Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Now, always great to spend any time with Ray Denninger, the Hall of Famer. Sir, welcome. It's great to have you back with us. Always great to be with you, Steve. All right. Uh, Boy, it's quite an exciting time for you uh, because there's a lot going on, starting with a book signing coming up. What kind of reception have you been getting with this everywhere you go? (laughs) Uh, Pretty amazing. Uh, The book has done... It's done really well. I mean, you you know, you write your memoir. You never know if anybody's going to care. <laughs> but uh, the, the response the response has been really good. Um, you know, it's a look back at uh, my 53 years in the business, uh, and it covers you know all the highlights and all the heartbreaks and all of that. And it's something that uh, anybody who's a Philadelphia fan can certainly relate to. But uh, it's been really good. It's been well received by people that weren't even Philadelphia fans that just wanted to look back at this. You know, this last 50 years of uh, of sports, because there's there's things in there from the Olympics and you know Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's mostly Philly, but it also takes a wide view of the world of sports, and people have really enjoyed it. So, yeah, that's um, I'll be doing the book signing this uh, Sunday at the yep. uh, Barnes and Noble in Lancaster, uh, and uh, from one to three. So I'm hoping some folks will come out and say hi. Yeah, one to three at the Barnes and Noble in Lancaster, and also then. Tommy and me is going to be on the at the Hershey Theater August 18th to the 20th, and we'll get to that in a few moments. Uh, you mentioned the highs and the, and the heartbreaks. How much of the heartbreak for you along the way has been personal, either job-wise or a great disappointment, and how much of it has been surrounding the teams you covered? Um, it's been it's been really great. I mean, I, I I mean, there's been some disappointments without without a doubt, uh, but for the most part, it's been great. I mean, I'm I'm the only reporter um, I'm the only reporter who covered um, who was here to cover the Flyers two Stanley Cups in '74 yep. and '75, mm-hmm. Phillies World Series in '80, um, the Sixers winning the championship with Dr. J and Moses in '83 '84. And then, of course, Super Bowl Fifty Two. Uh, I'm the only guy that's that was that covered all four championships. I'm the only guy that attended all four parades, uh, and um, and so I feel you know as a Philadelphia native, somebody that grew up here, somebody that grew up in this sports town, and uh, with a family of sports fans, they, having been able to be a witness to that kind of history, uh, and then be able to write about it uh, has been has been an incredible blessing. I've I've really enjoyed it. All right, you mentioned Leonard Duran. Was it both fights or just the New Orleans No Moss fight? Oh no, I did. I did uh, both the first two. I did. Uh, the I, first did two. Right. I did Leonard Duran number one, which was in Montreal. Yeah, Montreal. Uh, yeah. And then uh, and then the rematch, which the first one Duran won, uh, and then I covered the rematch down in the Superdome down in New Orleans, which was the that's the one everybody remembers. That was No Moss, right. but the first one was pretty historic in its own right. In that that was the first time Sugar Ray Leonard had ever tasted defeat. Uh, I mean, yeah. nobody, everybody, kind of thought that he was going to deal. He was going to take care of Duran because people. A lot of people were writing Duran off. They thought he was on the downside of his career. Uh, and Duran fought a very smart fight. He uh, he sort of, 
in the in the run up to the fight, he you know he belittled Ray Leonard. He you know he sort of embarrassed him and uh, and kind of bullied him in public events at the weigh in and everything. And he kind of goaded Ray into into abandoning his strength, which was really boxing. And he sort of he sort of brought Ray Leonard into this idea that okay, I'm going to trade punches with this guy, which is exactly what Duran wanted him to do. Uh, and that was how he beat him. Uh, and then when they had the rematch, you know, Ray recognized what a mistake that was. And when they fought the second time. Ray made sure that Duran fought his fight, and once he did that, it was it was it was eight rounds of pretty much Sugar Ray Sugar Ray Leonard dominance. Yeah, no question. And I, in your dealings in the two fights, Angelo Dundee is got if I recall correctly, is the guy that's in Sugar Ray's corner. Right. Uh, how much dealing did you have with him? And if so, what was he like to deal with? Oh, he was a pleasure. Uh, Angie was, uh, you know, he was, um, he was a great psychologist. Uh, a lot of what he did, you know, the, the Sugar Ray's real trainer was a guy named Jenks Morton, who had yes. who had worked with him from the time he, you know, he met him uh, as a as a kid, as a Golden Gloves kid, you know, a teenager, uh, and worked with him then. And when he went to the Olympics, and then when he turned pro, Jenks was really the guy that did the hard work. I mean, uh, Angie came in sort of in the final training phase, and then went to the fight and all. But Jenks was really the trainer. But but Angelo was uh, Angelo was just a, was a great psychologist. He was a he was a guy that uh, kind of made all of his fighters feel invincible. He d- he just had that quality about him, and um, and he it was really it was really interesting to watch because where I was seated for the first one, which was the one in Montreal, I was I was right under the corner of Ray Leonard, uh, and so I heard Angelo the whole fight just you know just telling Ray you know you're. You know you're screwing this up, kid. You're throwing, you're blowing it. You know you're 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 yeah. doing exactly what this guy wants you to do. You know, fight your fight. And uh, you know Ray was just so proud that he wouldn't do that, and it wound up with he wound up losing. But when they rematched in in New Orleans this time, you know Angelo had enough time to show him the film and to show him that this is this is not the way to go about it. And then once Ray once Ray decided that was the strategy he was going to use, then then he pretty much dominated Duran in the rematch. And you talked about covering other series, a Stanley Cup series, an NBA Finals series, a World Series. Adjustments happen in between games of those series. But I've always had the theory, Ray, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong in this. I always feel it's one thing for the winning team to say, we need to make some adjustments, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the team that loses says, yeah, we need to make adjustments. In some ways, is that what happened with Leonard? Like, I made adjustments because I lost, I had to? Yeah, no question. No question. I mean, he he realized, I mean, he realized when it was over that, uh, that, that his approach was totally wrong. Um, but he just got, uh, you know, what Duran made it, uh, the first fight, Duran just made it a, a macho thing. It was just, you know, I'm going to show you that I'm more macho than you are. Uh, and Ray, and he sort of belittled Ray, and he sort of suggested in his interviews that Ray was a fraud and that, uh, you know, he you know he had the whole gold medal thing. And remember, he was doing commercials, and he was on The yeah. Tonight Show. And, you know, and, and Duran was sort of suggesting that you're not a real fighter, you know, and, and you know, you're undefeated, and you're making all this money, but you're not a real fighter. Uh, and, you know, Ray, you know, Ray was up, was 
angry about that, and then he decided, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show this guy, I'm going to show the whole world that, you know, I can, I can go toe to toe with Roberto Duran, I can go toe to toe with the hands of stone, and uh, and beat him, and he found out that he couldn't, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he realized he realized when it was over, and he and he sort of admitted as much in the in the post fight press conference that you know I, I was stupid, I, I, you know, I got away from my game plan, you know, Jenks told me what to do, Angie told me what to do, and I was I was just too dumb to do it, um, but when they scheduled the rematch and they fought again the second time, you know, Ray exactly knew what he had to do. And Duran had, you know, and they, they did it, they, they were very smart. They did the rematch almost immediately. I mean, they, they fought, it was it was almost a couple months later. It was an incredibly fast rematch. And it was very smart to do because they knew Duran being Duran was going to go back to Panama and he was just going to party like crazy. Uh, and he did. He went he went back home and he gained about 40 pounds. And then, and then all of a sudden he had to lose all that weight uh, for the rematch. And, uh, you know, and he came into it. He didn't even look the same. He didn't have the same look in his eyes. He was he um, he he just didn't look like the same guy. And uh, and when it came down the second time, it was it was pretty much Ray Leonard all the way. Is there an event that you covered? And let's let's I'll take this away from football for a moment. Something non-football that you covered, where the experience was so great for you, you sat back and said, "Man, I'm really glad I ended up being assigned to do that." Yeah, um, boy, there are so there are so many of those, um, but um, I think the I think the one that um, that I I will really remember is the uh, is the and, and this it wasn't even a championship game. It just, it certainly felt like it, but it wasn't. Was the game between the Soviet the, the Soviet Red Army hockey team and the Philadelphia oh, yeah. Flyers? Yes. Um, when the flyer the flyers were at that point two time stanley cup champions uh and the soviet team had just been crushing everybody in north america and were regarded as as completely unbeatable i mean it was it was mm-hmm. you know it was like it was like nobody can beat these guys and this was of course well before lake placid the big upset uh but in in 1976 i mean the soviets were regarded as absolutely the best hockey team in the world and and nobody could beat them and uh, they they had finished up a tour of North America, and the, their last stop was Philadelphia. And they came in, and the Flyers were at that point two-time Stanley Cup champions. Uh, and it was you talk about a build-up. I mean, the build-up in that game was just amazing. And and the thing that was the backstory to it um, was was as interesting as the game itself, in the sense that the Flyers were very unpopular champions when they were champions outside of Philadelphia the right. National Hockey League establishment the people that ran the league the you know the commissioner Clarence Campbell all the people in the league office they didn't like the Flyers they hated the Flyers because of the style of play the whole broad street bully thing mm-hmm. they thought that the they thought the Flyers were sullying the sport of hockey uh, and they didn't think they were worthy champions but when it came down to that game and uh, the Soviets had been mopping up all the other NHL teams, and the Flyers were the last chance for the NHL to salvage some pride. All of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, all those guys in the league office were all came down to Philadelphia. And, you know, and Clarence Campbell came in the Flyers dressing room before the game and tried to give them this speech that you have to go out and win this game for us. And the players basically told Clarence Campbell to go to hell. 
Uh, they basically threw the commissioner, <laughs> the commissioner of the NHL, out of the locker room because they knew where he was coming from. Uh, and they, they went out. They said, "Look, we're going to go out and win this for ourselves." Uh, and they went out and they and they just dominated the uh, the great Soviet team who won the game going away four to one. It wasn't even that close. Uh, and boy, I mean, I was in the spectrum many times, and I heard it loud many times, but I never I never heard it louder than it was that day when the Flyers beat the Soviet team. And, uh, and that was, you know, like I said, there was no championship at stake, but it sure felt like it that day. Was that the one where they, where the Flyers went after uh, Valery Karlamov, got him pretty good, and the, the Soviets left the ice, and then suddenly found capitalism in the locker room when they heard they weren't going to get their money? Uh, you have it exactly right, Steve. That's exactly how it happened. Um, that uh, in the second period, um, Valery Karlamov, who was the, the the best Soviet player, was carrying the puck down the ice, and Ed Van Imp, the Flyers defenseman, um, hit him with a check, and it was it was actually a clean check. I mean, it was it was just a good solid body check. But throughout the whole game, uh, the, the Flyers had been taking the body and been banging the Soviets around, and uh, and they were getting pretty mad. And they were they were fighting with the with the officials who were all. NHL officials, so they were all Canadian, <laughs> uh, and so they, so the, the, the so the Soviets throughout the game, they thought they were getting the short end of the officiating, which I kind of understand where they're coming from here. Uh, but when Eddie Van Imp hit uh, Karamov and uh, and and sent him down, and he, he went down to the ice and stayed down for a little while. He wasn't seriously hurt, but Eddie definitely knocked the wind out of him. Um, the Soviet coach Viktor Tikhonov. Um, just made this gesture, and all of a sudden, all the Soviet players stood up and left the bench and went up the tunnel back to the locker room. Uh, and they said, "That's it, we're going home." And uh, nobody knew what was going to happen. All of a sudden, you know, this game stops, and everybody leaves <laughs> the ice, and people are in the stands, and you know, nobody knows what's going on. And we're in the press box, so I, we, we all kind of went down to the corridor to see what was going on. Uh, and Ed Snyder, uh, the Flyers' owner. Uh, went marching into the uh, Soviet dressing room with an interpreter uh, and uh, and he told them uh, listen uh, you guys <laughs> you, you walk out of here you, you're, guess what you're not getting the $250,000 you're supposed to get you know if you don't finish the game you ain't getting paid and uh, all of a sudden Karlamov's Got, okay, he was on his feet, and all the players were on their feet, and they went back out and they finished the game, not with a whole lot of enthusiasm, mind you, uh, but they went, they went out and they finished the game, and they picked up their check and they went home. But uh, that was, you know, at least at least for 48 hours, the uh, Philadelphia Flyers were beloved in the National oh. Hockey League, and then two oh. days later, everybody hated them again. Oh yeah, well look, I grew up as a Bruins fan. I was rooting like heck for the Flyers that day. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Uh, training camp's getting underway, and I know for Penn State, Penn State football training camp, Jack Ham and I were just talking this morning. It's going to get underway August 1st. People talk about spring being feeling like rebirth. I always felt like football season was. How do you view us, an Eagles training camp starting? Right. Um, well, it's so different now, Steve. Uh, yeah, it's so it different is. now with, yeah. with the way with the collective bargaining yeah. agreement being what it is. Uh, training camp now is. I mean, it's like four weeks of walkthroughs is really, you know, I, yeah. I, I started covering the Eagles in the early 70s, and I covered them through the whole Vermeil camps. Uh, and those were, th- th- those were brutal. <laughs> I, mean, I, I still remember Dick Vermeil's first training camp um, at, uh, at Widener um, in 1976. Um, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, every day, no days off, full pads, contact every day. Um, I mean, it was just it was just brutal, and that was the way you know. And Dick's feeling was, you know, like we don't have all that much talent. 
and if we're going to beat teams in the NFL this year, we're going to do it one way. We're going to have to outwork them. And outworking them means like right now in training camp. You know, we we got to work we'll work longer, work harder, work tougher than every other team in the league to make up that talent difference, which was very real. Uh, and that was how Dick built that team. Uh, and he he really believed he believes in it to this day. I mean, he goes to the Eagles training camps now, and I've been there with him. And he just stands on the sidelines and watches training camp today, and he just shakes his head. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, guys are out there in shorts and t-shirts, and guys taking days off, and you know, and you have mandated, you know, they have a couple days off during the week. I mean, there were no days off with Dick's training camp. I mean, they went straight yeah. through. But those were the days when they had six preseason games. So I mean, the, the summer training camp just seemed endless. Uh, it seemed endless for the players and the coaches and the reporters. It, you felt like by the time you got to the season, you were exhausted. But that was, you know, that was the way teams were built back then. And you know, today it's it's totally different. You go to training camp now. I mean, I'm, I was sort of being half facetious when I said it's four weeks of walkthroughs. <clears throat> but that that really is kind of how it feels compared to what it used to be. You got the book signing coming up on um, uh, on the thirty first in Lancaster at Barnes and Noble from one to three, and then at the Hershey Theater. And yep. you're going to have great narrators, you know, that'll be a part of it. With Ernie Acorsi being the last one coming up, and yep. I guess the advance on that has been outstanding. How gratifying yeah. has it been to see it come to life and the response to it? It's been amazing, Steve. It really has been. I mean, we launched Tommy and Me. Um, we, we first performed it in 2016 uh, here in Philadelphia, uh, and it did really well. Uh, I mean, way beyond my expectations. Uh, and then there was so much excitement about it and so much interest in it and so many people talking about it that they decided, okay, let's bring it back again the next year. So they did, 2017, and then 2018 and 2019. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't perform the play in 2020 because of COVID and all theaters right. were closed. But then once we got to 2021, we brought it back twice. We brought it to, uh, uh, to the Delaware Theater Company in Wilmington, and we brought it to the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope. Uh, and now this year, this is the one I always kind of wanted, Steve. This is the one I always kind of had in the back of my mind, yeah. which was bringing it to the Hershey Theater, which is really where the story of Tommy and me began. Um, I mean, that was where the first time I met Tommy McDonald when I was I was a 10-year-old, freckle-faced 10-year-old with an autograph <laughs> book waiting, waiting outside the locker room, uh, waiting for Tommy McDonald to get his autograph uh, at Hershey, which is where the Eagles had their training camp then. That was where I met him. That was our, where our friendship started, and that's where the the story of Tommy and me started. And so I always kind of hoped that somewhere along the line, I mean, we've moved around and we've performed it in a lot of different places, but I always, always wanted to bring it back to Hershey because to me, you know, that's where the story really began. And I kind of feel like this, you know, this next month when we go there for August 18th, 19th, and 20th, I'm really going to be bringing the story home. And it does bring it home. And I'm sure you're gratified by the great uh, people you'll have involved, Ross Tucker and Ernie and everybody being involved yeah. in it as well. Yeah, they uh you know, Ross you know, Ross who's a local guy who's from who's from that area and grew up a big Eagles fan. Um I approached him because when we do the play, we you know, we perform the play and then after every play we have these special guests who come on the stage with the cast uh and we do questions and answers with the audience and we give the audience an opportunity to ask their questions and interact with the people from the play. That's part of that's part of every performance. And uh, I'm, I really feel good that, uh, you know, Ross agreed to be the guy on opening night on the 18th. And Ernie Acorsi, who had uh, just a tremendous long career in the National Football League, he's in the New York Giants Football Hall of Fame, uh, and is a Hershey native. 
and uh, and he grew up around Eagles training camp just like I did. I mean, he was just he was like me. He was a little kid. He was a little camp rat. You know, he was just running around, going to practice every day, getting autographs. You know, hoping a football would bounce your way so you could throw it back. I mean, Ernie, Ernie and I kind of grew up the same way, and he's he's already seen the play once before, and he's really looking forward to seeing it again. He's going to be the the moderator and the host on the final performance on on Sunday, August the twentieth. Which, as you alluded to, I mean, we've already I think they've already sold like five hundred or six hundred tickets for that one. I mean, it's the response to it has been very gratifying. And Ernie, of course, by the way, spent a significant time here at Penn State. Yes, he did. On his career, so yes, always a pleasure. I am so thrilled for the success of all of this because nobody deserves it really more than you. You've thrown your heart and soul into every part of your career and your life, and it's great to see everybody appreciate it the way they should. Well, I I appreciate that. It's been uh, it's been terrific. It was. It's hard to believe, Steve, when I look back, when I actually when I wrote the book, Finished Business, looking back and just realizing, my God, it was it was 53 years I did this, uh, and it, it just didn't feel like it. I guess that just tells you how much I enjoyed it. I I really really loved every bit of it, and uh, you know, and, and Tommy and me has been perhaps the most gratifying part of the whole thing because it allows it allows me to kind of relive my youth again. And how fortunate are we that we get a chance to see it through your eyes? Thank you so well, much. Well, I hope so. I hope you know. I, yeah, hope, no. I hope that folks. I hope that folks come out. I know that. I know that your producer Matt is coming out. He's coming to the Ernie yep. Corsi show. So I look forward to yep. meeting him there. Absolutely, we can't wait for it. Uh, thanks so much, Ray. As always, and I look forward to our next conversation. As always, I do too. Talk to you soon, Steve. Take care.